Have you ever wondered how successful architecture, engineering, and construction companies scale their business? Or have you ever wanted guidance on how to get more growth, wealth, and freedom from your AEC company? Well, then you're in luck. Hi, I'm Will Forat. And I'm Justin Nagel, and we're your podcast hosts. We interview successful AEC business leaders to learn how they use people, process, and technology to scale their businesses. So sit back and get ready to learn from the industry's best. This is Building Scale. All righty. Today on the show, our guest is Scott Maloney. He is the president and founder of K2M Design. They just celebrated their 20th year anniversary on September 1st. K2M Design is a high growth entrepreneurial firm specializing in architecture, interior design, engineering, asset management, and specialty consulting services. Scott's visionary leadership has grown the firm to be in the top 5% of all design firms in the U.S. Specifically, they lead design trends in hospitality, correctional, residential, senior living, and institutional projects. He's actively involved in EO, Phi Delta Theta, the Ohio Lambda chapter at Kent State University. He's also on the advisory board at Kent State's University School of Architecture. And last but certainly not least, he is the father of two amazing men, Brian and Nathan. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, gentlemen. We're excited to have you. Very, very excited. So, Scott, you know, as we've been kind of talking, just there's so much about you. And, you know, when we when we were talking, there was a whole bunch of that I, we wanted to pull from, but we really got, had to condense it down. Why don't you start with, you know, why did you start K2M Design? You know, give us your beginning, you know, with, with K2M. What, what was that like? And, you know, Give us why, KTM, what makes it so special? Certainly. Well, you know, I mean, we started, you know, 20 years ago, but the idea came uh, just a little bit before then. In 2001, I had a dream about uh, the type of organization that I wanted to grow. And it had this almost look like a, a bicycle wheel where there was a hub um, of activity and then a series of spokes, which were like regional offices that came off of it. And it was going to be the type of design as an architect that we wanted to have for this organization that was kind of rooted in its Midwest hub, but then have a, a series of regionalized offices that provided a level of safety and security, you know, from, uh, you know, varying different types of geographies that are busy at some point in time versus others, as well as project diversity. We all know that, uh, you know, in the, in the world of finance and the stock market, you know, there's always ups and downs, you know, like the classic roller coaster in, you know, the different uh, types of bottles that you're in. So industrial may be hot one day and it's multifamily the next, followed by you know, hospitality and commercial office space. And so we really wanted to take a lot of those peaks and valleys out. And so with our regional diversity, the project type diversity that we had, we really created a pretty amazing organization. And that was the initial dream long before we ever had the name of what K2M design was going to be. But you asked the question, and I think that's even, you know, cooler than, you know, the this vision and dream that I had when I, when I sketched this out at three o'clock in the morning in January of 2001. But really what makes us special is our hands down, by far the single most important thing, you know, at K2M Design are the K2Mers. And, you know, without them, you know, none of, none of what we have produced and, and will create uh, long into the future is possible. And I think it's the uniqueness of the type of work that we do. You know, as I mentioned, you know, just this like sign curve and different project types, but we really do get involved in a, in a variety of different type of work. Uh, you know, core markets for us, similar to what uh, Justin had said in terms of, you know, various government services, hospitality, 
multifamily correctional work and, you know, just a lot of just very unique type of projects. And so you'll never sit there and go, hey, that's a K2M project. If you didn't know that it was something that we actually designed, because nothing that we do looks the same as the last project. It's always uniquely crafted around our customers' needs, their brand expectations, their wants, their culture, you know, so it embodies and embraces the true essence of who they are and how our architecture can uh, reflect that in our interiors and our engineering solutions. And, you know, one of the other things, you know, I wouldn't say other things, but one of the things that makes us um, truly unique is our core values. Be good, go forward, nurture relationships and learn and lead. And those are really kind of the core essence to the organization of who we are. And we hire, we fire around them, we live to them. And, you know, every single day we grow because of the values that we have within the organization and the relationships that we've built with each other. So, I mean, people are definitely important. I love what you said about your people and even kind of that value system is around hiring and firing, you know, those super important aspects. Can you give us an example of when you're talking about core values, you know, why did you decide to take that approach? Why those specific core values? You know, I'll tell you early on as, as I was kind of learning about business and the, the organization was growing, we needed to put some framework around the values that we had. And, you know, I, I think I'd read like the, the Harvard Business Journal, you know, how to create your own core values session. I participated in numerous EO programs of speakers coming in and telling how to create core values. And we wrote some just epic core values around it, you know maintain a highly ethical, moral, and caring culture. And so, you know, as the organization grew, we said, you know what, this is just way too complicated as I'm explaining it to person after person after person that's coming in and and going, what the hell is that? Right? You know, it's like long list of core values. And, you know, one day, uh, culture shock, a guy named Ron Kaminsky was um, conducting a team building event for us. And you know, one of the, the uh, half-day session that we actually did was, how do we take this just ginormous tablet of, you know, core value information and, and consolidate it and make it very concise and that truly represents who K2M Design is? And our team, back probably almost 10 years ago at this point in time, the very first thing that they came out with, and I'll, I'll never forget, I believe Marta uh, Johns was the, the person, but, you know, it's like, be good. That is how we maintain a highly ethical, moral, caring culture. And just like, just package it up so neatly. And then everything else just like fell into place. We've always had the values. It's just how we now were referring to them that made it so cool. Oh, that's wonderful. It's a great story. You know, talk about people. You obviously have the people side down. Why don't we shift gears a little bit? You know, people, process, technology. What about technology side? We talked a little bit and it sounds like you've got a little bit of a competitive advantage and it was a decision that, that you made a while back ago, you know, tell us about that decision, what led up to that decision and where you're at today. Yeah. So it was probably in the, the late 2016 timeframe, we were in one of our owners meetings and Steve Grazley, who's my, my business partner in engineering lead for our organization, he and I were sitting down and we were talking about, you know, again, maybe some of those things that truly make us special, but more so where we see ourselves heading um, into the future. 
And what is it really going to take to, you know, as we continue to grow this organization and as we look at it, what are the things that maybe slow us down, but also can can accelerate the way that we we run our business? And it it, it just was like a light bulb that came off and it was like technology. And like so, technology was going to become that competitive advantage of ours. And that's really where that initial lead came from. And we were starting to see it very small inklings of it in other service lines, but not at, at, in the architecture and engineering worlds. So, you know, you said the words technology is a competitive advantage. And you said that you were seeing like these little things. What was the actual investment like? Tell us, tell us a little bit more about what that actual investment looked like. Sure. So, you know, it started out, you know, <laughs> I'm a planner. Um, so for anybody that's watching this that understands the architecture industry, I, I'm fantastic at planning and programming. I couldn't put a building together if my life depended upon it. That's why I have an amazing team of people. But we started out by creating a master plan, right? And really what we wanted to, to do with technology and what it was going to become. And you know, before we knew that we were going to make a, a million plus dollar investment in technology, we, we kind of created a roadmap for ourselves of what we thought we wanted it to become. And as we developed that roadmap, we then started putting a, you know, that number to it and really understanding that this is going to be a, a seven-figure investment and you know, a year-over-year uh, return on that investment. And that was starting in the 2017 timeframe. And we started implementing in 2018. How big were you at that time? Obviously, you know, seven figure investment, depending on how big of a compute, you know, how big of a company you are, you know, that may matter more or matter less. How big were you guys at about that time? You know, so in the, the 2017 timeframe, when we first started this, uh, we were probably around 50 people and we knew that it's hard. I don't care who you are, what kind of business you own, what kind of size you are, but it's very hard to make a seven-figure investment. Let's call that 40 to 50% of your annual income you know, or, or profitability. I mean, that's a huge reinvestment in your organization. Fortunately for us, you know, we did make that commitment, but we were able to stretch that investment over a course of three years. And so the business was able to absorb that investment in the organization through its annual cash flow and be able to pay that, that debt down. Thank you for sharing some of those details. You know, that really puts some context to what you mean by sizable. And I'm sure a lot of people, I mean, geez, 50%, right? Of, you know, profitability going to that. that, That's a huge investment, right? Right. So let's get to the bottom line. Was it worth it? You know, I'll tell you, there are, there definitely were bumps in the road along the way. You know, that master plan wasn't the most perfectly outlined uh, document that we've ever created in our entire lives, but I'm 100% confident that this was an extraordinarily wise investment for our organization. And, you know, I'll give you a little backstory for anybody who's, who's, who's interested in this, but the, you know, we were a hardware company. Right. I mean, most, most architects, you have a giant tower that sits next to your desk. The thing just like cranks away, you know, there's, you know, whatever mice are running the wheels on the inside of it. And it's, you know, you have your AutoCAD or your, your Revit disc inserted into it. And it's like, you're a hardware based company. And there's these black boxes that flash and do all sorts of crazy shit in server rooms that have their own air conditioning system. I mean, it's nicer than where I live, but the, we were limited by our technology. Okay. I mean, we couldn't pick up our stuff and go and move it into another location. And, you know, it became, to, became a, a big drag, like a boat anchor on us. And, you know, we, we started sitting there and going, you know, with this investment, we were going to become a software company. 
So, you know, embrace that tech and, and be mobile and be flexible. And at K2M, one of the biggest things and best things about us of why people join our company is the flexibility that we have. And, you know, pre-COVID, I mean, we were, we were, we were always a flexible organization, but I'll tell you, it was a nanosecond move to each of our homes, you know, in uh, mid-March of 2020. Let's literally pick up your thin client, grab your, your, your monitor. You want two, grab two, take it home, plug back in. You have an internet signal and you're up and operating. I don't care where you are in the world. You can work for K2M with a good internet signal. So it's not a location-specific um, requirement anymore that you have to come. You got to sit down at a desk and you plug in and you know, put your disk in and start working on your, your, your stuff. It's, we're all cloud-based. And it was just an incredible move for us. So you're talking about the incredibleness of it. And it sounds like you really did benefit as a company. I mean, you moved into the cloud. You have flexibility to work from anywhere. But did you have to make any changes, you know, with people or your processes, you know, once you made that shift and investment in technology, what would you guys have to do? I'll tackle the, uh, the people part first, because remember, we were a hardware company. So everybody's used to having their box, you know, this big tower, this black box, this server, and, you know, how we were, we were going to be operating, you know, was limited by the, the speed that we had at the, you know, at the wall where we plugged into or the speed that we had in the building um, that we plugged into. And, you know, so it was a little bit of, of a learning curve for people to, including for myself, I was the, one of the very slowest adapters to get into the cloud. I am a 100% embracer of it now. It's kind of funny how that's worked out, but it's, you know, just getting people's mindset to go, okay, I'm not a hardware group, we're a software group, and we have this incredible technology that they don't even have to see, you know, in a secure private site off-site that enables us to run faster, smarter, and better than we ever did when we were a hardware-based group. So people, just a little bit of a mind shift, but once you, you know, much like learning a new software, it took about 24 hours, you know, three days, eight hours a day, people started getting used to it. They started working out where the bugs were, learning how to operate the new system, and then bam, it's going along great. So I want to back up for just a second. How much of a struggle was it, you know, when you were doing that transition? You, you make it sound really easy. Was it really that easy? Even oh, though a few absolutely. bugs here and there? Yeah, I mean, definitely a few bugs here and there. We are very fortunate. We have a, a group uh, called LaserPoint, which is our technology provider, Dave Laser. He's an EO, fellow EO member here in uh, Cleveland, Ohio with me. But his team was uh, very good at working with ours. And we spent a lot of time, you know, test the cloud and the system that we were building because it doesn't exist out there. There's, you know, I wish there was an architectural road or an engineering roadmap of like, hey, if you want to create a cloud system, go ahead and do this. Everybody has like kind of their own customized version out there. Maybe there's an, an entrepreneurial idea there for some podcast listener in the future, but it, it was not easy. Definitely bumps in the road, you know, things that we just, we didn't predict. You know, some of our software is an extremely heavy use of bandwidth. A figure like, you know, our Revit technology when we're working on a BIM 360 platform platform or some of our rendering softwares um, that we use and some of that high level graphics work, you know, being able to work on movie that we had made of projects of ours or marketing work, definitely learning curves around all of those that we did not have that figured out right. And it took a while to be able to go, okay, how do we do this? How are we going to do this? What does it look like in the future? And you know, we made a little bit more investment in the, the technology and we had to bump up all of our speeds in order to be able to process the, uh, the heavy graphics, you know, softwares that we use. So definitely 
we're still learning to this day. I mean, we've had it in our belts now for three years. We're making another investment in 2022 into an additional upgrade into that system. There's always maintenance that's going on to make little tweaks and, and you know, just make a little improvements to make this as, like I said, keep it us at a nice competitive advantage with our technology. So what are the real benefits of that a company gets, you know, putting technology at the forefront of their business? Right. It's really weird. There's a lot of construction companies, even AEC, where they're kind of like what you said, the old school version of you, very hardware based or just not really looking at hardware as a competitive advantage like you are. So I want to talk about a little bit about kind of putting technology at the forefront of their business. Right. So I think what we get and I had had briefly mentioned it before is that flexibility, you know, and the ability to work. Um, from anywhere, as long as there's an internet signal. You want to be sitting in Starbucks having a, you know, a Zoom meeting with a client and sketching, and you can do anything that you want from an iPad. When you're on an airplane, it doesn't matter. The technology is available to because everything that we're operating in is 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 in that cloud. You know, so that that component of it is great. One of the other advantages that comes to mind is the efficiency in our usage of the actual software. So no longer, as I made mention, you know, I'm putting that CD into my, you know, drive and I'm working off of this piece of software that's, you know, tied to a computer. I have a series of licenses and and in a ton of different types of softwares that anybody can use because it's all cloud-based. And so I don't need to have like that physical piece of software in that in a particular location in order to be able to use it. It's available and open to anybody that's within our platform. We'll have to prove it out and maybe I'll look at some numbers at some point in time, but financially it's smarter for us to be able to most efficiently use the softwares that we have and be able to use it across all of our nine different office locations and amongst where all of our people are to this day. So we talked about how technology is a really competitive edge and you made a decision, right? And in kind of our pre-interview, you had talked about how you make decision, you have a decision-making philosophy, coined it to sort of the 60% decision-making philosophy. Where did that come from? I think that's what I was born with because I am sorry to all the engineers out there. I am not a, a high level of data gathering sort of person. I can get to uh, <laughs> a, a decision with about 60% of the information because I'm, I'm looking to collect the, the, the most critical components that are going to have the biggest impact. You know, maybe you have it the 80-20 rule. Some people have heard of that, you know, before, but I get about 60% of the way to the level of understanding. I get comfortable with it. And if I feel good about it, not just from a gut perspective, but I'll even sleep on it. But if I feel right about making that decision, then that decision gets made. And whether it's a $100 decision or a million dollar decision, I, I, I approach most everything that I do in that fashion. So speaking of $100 uh, and million dollar decisions, you got any stories about you know, where a time where your decision-making process made you come out on top and one that didn't? Ooh, isn't that an interesting question? The decision-making process came out on top. That's a great question. All right, I'm going to go to one of my very early acquisitions. And it was in, it would have been 2006, right? And we acquired a company called Spectrum Design Services. It was a, a great interiors, interior design company led by Paula Boykin. And, and they had, I think, about 10 ladies that were working there at the time. And their focus was on hospitality. 
and they happen to be the interiors division of a large REIT called the, the Boykin Hospitality REIT. Hopefully I got that name perfectly right. Who was my actually first hospitality customer? Greatest cold call of my life. Still to this day, thank you, Rich Conti. It's a shout out for you, my friend. But the as we were working together, we got to know each other. And Bob and Paula were uh, looking at selling the, the hotel REIT along with their team and then decided they were going to sell the interiors business. And K2M was, was one of the primary companies that they were interested in, in, in making that transition to. And we worked our way through all the deals and you know, had a handful of attorneys helping me out at that time. And you know, it was really interesting because it's like you're buying this great company with these great people with an incredible portfolio that has most of their business is tied into this customer that's going to be selling their entire hotel portfolio. And, you know, there's a little bit of risk there, but I truly believed in, in Paul and Bob, they were great mentors to me, even, you know, after the, the sale occurred and that I could take what they had and really make something special out of it. And we were able to grow a hospitality portfolio out of it. Kelly Schaffrin, who is the, the lead of that team at the time is still the lead to this day. She's one of my closest K2M in this organization has been a rock star for us all along. And, you know, we, we continue to grow in the, uh, you know, the top 100 list of hospitality design firms in the United States because of the work that they do and that very early decision on acquiring that company and willing to take the risk and, and, you know, experience the reward that came from it. Wow. I mean, just, you know, acquisition is already on its own, a, a risky business. And the yeah. fact that you knew that someone else, you know, that a portion of that business was going to go away and you still went through it with that acquisition. Obviously there's something, something to that 60% uh, making philosophy. What about the flip side? You know, when, when, when didn't it work out? Everybody wants to know when did it go right, right? So, like, give me the gory story, Maloney. Tell me what it's all about. Well, I'll tell you. I had a an incredible development opportunity in Key West, Florida, and we were going to custom design a home and had acquired it, or let's say, in the range of about two and a half million dollars. And we made a small investment into it, call it another half a million dollars for math's sake, and the three million dollar home. We were going to sell that home at 3.5, 3.7 million, put a couple mil, quarter million bucks in each of my partner in my pocket. I had an investor that came in and was going to put my side of the money down in the deal. And I felt like I was ready for the world. 60%, no problem. This is easy. It's Florida. It's 2006, 2007. Who couldn't make money in Florida at that time? It was right at the top of the, the, the peak of the bubble. Didn't know that the bubble was actually there. My investor ended up backing out on the deal. And I said, shit, I can't afford to not take this leap because who can't make money in Florida in 06 and 07? I'm like, this is easy. It's a no brainer. I leveraged my entire home equity line. I leveraged my credit cards. I took a personal loan out. I spent all of my cash, almost three quarters of a million dollars at the time. I took that plunge. I went in head first with you know, concrete slippers on, I think at the time, you know, I had no idea what was going to come. And unfortunately the house never finished on time. We made all of the customizable upgrades um, to it that you possibly could penciled in around 3.5 million took occupancy of October, 2008, right at the, when just the world was coming to an end, that house sold three plus years later, four years later, for $1.8 million, 
which was the initial or the balance of the loan that was owed on it. So that three quarter million dollars went away like that. Oh, oh, oh my God. Oh. That's, that's horrible. But thank right. you for sharing that, right? <laughs> you, you survived, which survived. You survived. I mean, there's a lot of, com- there's a lot of people, a lot of companies that did not survive that bubble. What'd you learn after that? You know, I think the greatest, the, the greatest life lesson there was if it's too good to be true and you have to work too hard to make that true, that it's too good to be true. And you really need to just say, no, thank you. And, you know, that would have saved, you know, that three quarters of a million dollars, which took five years to recover from six years to recover from as I paid down my home equity line. It just, it's, I wish I would have just said no. when that investor walked away because they had, they had that knowledge and the money wouldn't have mattered to them, but it was just like, Hmm, I worked too hard to make it come true. And so when I see myself get into that type of position and it has happened, I know well enough um, because of that, that project that I, I know how to say no. The entrepreneurial tax, right? Absolutely. We all have it. Yeah. So some people consider, you know, your 60% decision-making process, your, your, your high risk personality in quotes here, who balances you out? Who helps you stay balanced? Definitely Steve Grayson, And he's the chief operating officer of the, the organization. And for anybody that, that knows the entrepreneurial operating system, you heard this very early on. I'm the visionary of the organization. Steve is the integrator. And our two personalities balance each other out perfectly. We both have a level, a little level of risk-taking, but he requires a little bit more data. He's the engineer in the group. Keep that in mind. And, you know, doesn't make the, the chaotic visionary pivot of every two months happen. You know, I may come up with this, you know, great, wonderful idea of, you know, the, the shiny fish that just came by and the squirrel that just happened to climb up the tree and, you know, like, hey, we're going to move K2M. We're going to do this and then we're going to do that. And he, he, he slows that down so that I don't like, you know, completely disrupt the organization all at one time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, throw it into chaos as it used to be prior to his joining. For those of you that, that don't know what he's talking about, visionary and integrator, those are terms that come out from a book called Traction with Gino Wickman. There's also a book called Rocket Fuel. And essentially the visionary VI relationship, visionary has a role. They're the idea of people. They're the ones that really chaos into everything. But the big ideas are what help a company grow forward. And the integrator is the one that actually makes it happen and actually t- says no to the, to the V. Uh, to the visionary, you know, 99 out of 100 times. That one time is usually what are those big ideas. And so if yes. you think about Walt Disney and and his brother, Walt was the visionary, his brother, who I honestly don't remember the name of, and that's kind of the point. The point. Uh, was, the in- mm-hmm. was the integrator, right? So that's what we're talking about here. Absolutely. So last thing about your 60% philosophy, how does that factor into M&A, into mergers and acquisitions? I think where it comes into play becomes more towards the relationship side of things and the belief and the trust in a seller and the company that they're selling and having some, you know, having the knowledge to understand who they are, the culture that they have and the feeling that I get out of it. And it's probably the 40% that goes into, you know, making that decision and the balance of it is, is data that anybody can mine. And, you know, you come up with in order to find the how you're going to make money out of the deal, how you're going to pay for the deal, you know, what kind of deal is it going to be like? How do you structure it? All that stuff you can research and you can figure out. But, you know, I I think it's, I really believe that 
that 60% probably is more here and than it is in, you know, spreadsheets. Perfect. It's a great way of summing that up. Scott, you've been awesome. Thank you for being on our podcast. We'll drop all of your social links and, you know, one other thing at the end of the show notes, one other thing, what's the best way for people to contact you? And is there anything that you want to promote? Certainly. So, you know, you're all uh, welcome. Just check out k2mdesign.com. Just click the people button. You'll see me right there and you can be able to uh, email me or even give me a call. If you have any questions, shoot me a text. Email is absolutely the best way. It's the fastest way for me to be able to respond. So smaloney at k2mdesign.com. In case you uh, don't remember that k2mdesign.com web address. Oh, and thank you uh, to you both for having uh, me here. It's been uh, it's an absolute privilege to be able to share you know the good, the bad, and the ugly of uh, 20 years of experience. It's not without learning, and you know for everybody that's out here watching it, hopefully you get something to take away and that you remember from my experiences. I've I've been able to take away from so many incredible mentors and partners uh, throughout my entire life that have helped influence the type of man that I am in the business that we have. So thank you all. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, Scott. Indeed. Thank you for joining us today and listening to this episode. If this episode did help you, then be sure to share it with someone else who needs to hear it. If you want to be a guest on the podcast or looking for additional help on your journey to find more wealth, scale, and freedom in your AEC company, visit our AEC resources page at spotmigration.com backslash AEC hyphen resources. resources.